Thank you. Well, this morning we'll be reading out of the book of Matthew. We'll be in the first chapter, starting with the first verse. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a blue one uh, under a few of the seats around you, so go ahead and grab that, and it will be on page 471 in that blue Bible. So starting with the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Simon, and Simon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation of Babylon, deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jimmy. It was impressive. First service. Well done. My name is Josh. I wasn't here last week. Uh, I had a major toothache Saturday night. I was in a lot of pain and I was super cranky. And getting kind of lightheaded, and I text, and Blake obviously filled in, so I appreciate him doing that. Uh, I had a root canal done, so those of you that prayed for me or thought about me or whatever, thank you. The tooth is better, and I'm on the mend, so that's why I wasn't here. I don't recommend a root canal. I don't recommend it at all. It was brutal. I, last Sunday, I did not get out of bed. I just stayed in bed and cried and cussed under my breath and was like, God, how long? How long, oh Lord, will you forget me in this pain? But now I'm back, and we get to do Advent, and I love Christmas. I love Christmas as a son. I love Christmas as a brother. I love Christmas as a dad. I love Christmas as a husband. I love Christmas as a pastor. I just love Christmas. I am Buddy the Elf. I love it more than anything in the world. And some of you are like me, and this is the greatest season in the world. And some of you are probably more wired like my mom, where Christmas is like something you bear because you have to, because you want to be a good mother. Growing up, we decorate reluctantly, and then Christmas morning, all the presents would be open. It'd be about 8.05 a.m., and my mom would have the tree on her shoulder, and it would be taken out of the house. And I'm like, what is up with this lady? She is 
crazy. And come to find out, like, not everyone has great memories from Christmas. Not everyone has a great family story to tell. And we've got everything in this room. We've got Buddy the Elf's just smiling through life. We've got Jimmy Curley, who's just happy to be alive, happy to read a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. And we've got people in pain. And we've got people that are struggling to, like, figure out, how is Christmas even going to bring any joy this year? It's the first Christmas without, or it's the first Christmas as, like, how do we make sense of that? I think about a bunch of intersections. Christmas is this intersection of this magical uh, youth-filled uh, thing in my mind where it's like Santa Claus in presents. It's also the intersection now as a parent of a lot of work and a lot of cleaning and a lot of stuff to buy and a lot of stuff to keep track of. And it's all this intersection of a man uh, whose next big... Uh, age is going to be 40, where more and more the stories that we tell at Thanksgiving and at Christmas involve pain. It's almost like the scales are starting to like, life is kind of equally painful as it is joyful for me. And I think that's true across the room. So what do we do in this? What sort of theme music do we want our Christmas to be this year? I love Christmas music. I love joy to the world. I love that. That's our first song. What's the theme music for your Christmas? I think the Bible provides a sort of hint at this. This is not in this passage, but Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament. It's written by the prophet Isaiah, who's like a major character kind of telling the story of God. And people have noticed that Isaiah has 66 chapters in it, and there's 66 books in the Bible. And a lot of them think like Isaiah reflects the totality of the Bible. So there's 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and Isaiah's kind of reflecting and hinting at and pushing us towards the story of the whole Bible, which would mean Isaiah 39 is sort of closing the chapter on the Old Testament. Isaiah 4 would be opening up. What's this new chapter going to be? As we open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as we open up Advent season, what is this new chapter that God is going to tell us? What is the story going to be now? And Isaiah, this is my quiet time I'm reading through through this month, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, here's what Isaiah gives us. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity has been pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's the kickoff word Isaiah uses to describe the new day and age? Comfort, comfort. This pastor I love who kind of speaks into the lives of younger pastors through his online platform, he says, pastors, here's what your people need. Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort. Stop yelling at them. Stop getting all haughty. Stop getting all high and mighty. Comfort your people. And I think that's what the Christmas season is for us. As we enter in with whatever we have going on, we want to be comforted this season. Here's what we're doing. Just as a church, we're taking a break from John. Obviously, we're in Matthew. But Matthew, the first two chapters are sort of the birth story of Jesus, told through a few different lenses, his genealogy, and then through his mother Mary, this virgin birth, and then through these weird visitors who show up to give him gifts in the middle of the night, and then through his actual enemies, people who are there in the moment when he's born who are seeking to kill him before his time has actually come. Well, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2 over the next four weeks for our Advent season. That's what we're doing. And here's my prayer as a pastor, that we would be comforted by Jesus as we look at him in his first advent. Advent just means arrival, coming. In his first coming, we would be comforted. So let's bow and let's just ask God to kind of quiet our hearts, settle us into this moment and prepare us for this together.
Jesus be with us. Your first advent is now far in the past. And God, we sit here almost like the Jews in the days of old, waiting for your next move. And God, we have it much better off than they do. We have the guaranteed promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He came once, he's coming again. God, I pray that your first advent, your first arrival would speak to us, speak tenderly as Isaiah says, and that we'd be comforted as we go to your word and see once again our Savior, our King, our greatest gift, Jesus. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what are we doing here? We're just going to walk through. I'm not going to read all that. Jimmy did a great job. I don't want to one-up him and embarrass him that I read it better. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just set the stage. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a genealogy. How many of you guys have done 23andMe, all those DNA tests? My mom texts me every other week like, you really need to do this. I found out Uncle Ozzy is, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Most people, like, if you're like me, you don't really think past your grandparents. The Jews were meticulous with keeping track of people and places. Why? Well, because everything about their life was tied up in their family, their tribe, where they came from, and also their land, and those were synced up. So everything about the Jewish uh, rights and inheritance were tied up in where you come from and what land is yours, and it's all tied up into family stuff. So they were meticulous with keeping genealogies. If you were with us this summer, we went through Nehemiah. Nehemiah, like every other chapter, was like, and this list of people, and this list of people, and this list of people. Why? Because they're an oral culture. They tell stories, and they tell the story over and over and over again, in Part of keeping the story going is the people involved to keep the story going. But more specifically, more acutely, here's why the Jews kept meticulous notes of where they came from. God interacted in the past with them, and he started to speak to them, and he would allow them to speak with him, and he started to make promises, and he, used, and he would say things like, through you, Abraham. I'm going to bless the world. Through you, David, I'm going to, through you, Aaron, there's going to be a priesthood that's going to speak on behalf of me and mediate between man and God. Through you. So the Jews had all these promises tied up in specific people and families and last names. And that's how it worked. God was speaking and he was making promises, but he was doing it through people. He wasn't making high, lofty, religious promises up in space. He was talking to real people. So just so you know, through this guy, this guy, yeah, this guy, this guy, I'm going to bless the world. Abraham, that old guy that lied about his wife, that guy. And through this guy, David, that guy, the sinful, sexual pervert, yes, that guy. And through this guy. So the Jews are always taking notes. And now Matthew is the sequel to the story. And the story continues on. And how's it going to continue on? Is God still keeping his promises? Matthew says, yes, he has kept it. And we are now in fulfillment of this time. If I had to summarize, like, what is, you know, I, I came into the church later in life. Like, what is God trying to do through his promises of the Old Testament? Because forever, if you're just sort of quasi-religious or you're just kind of stepping into a religious environment, be it here or another church or another sort of religious uh, outlook in life, I think the default mode is I'm walking in here. God has sort of this list of things that he'd want me to do or the gods. And I need to sort of make a contract with God and do my best to really figure this out. 
But as you read the Old Testament, here's what happens. God keeps initiating. God promises. God moves. God does the action. God is the pursuer. He's the romantic one. He's the great husband that pursues his wife. And that's what we see. If I had to sum it up, here's what God says. He's going to show up in a special way through his people. And he's going to lead them back into shalom. What is shalom? It's the Jewish word for harmony. Everything is going to be back into harmony one day. And it's going to be done as God does it through the Jewish people. That's the story of the Old Testament. Not how do men and women get their act together so God can give them a check and get them onto the afterlife. It's how is God going to fix all this? My kids are really into the Rubik's Cube right now. And they're not good at it. They don't know that. But there's Elijah in here. They always say (laughs) They always say, Dad, I finished it. And I look, and they got one side of it done. And they got the blue side. Dad, I did the Rubik's Cube. I'm like, uh, I don't want to break it to you, but you are not even close. <laughs> and I think a lot of our religious answers are like a Rubik's Cube with like blue done. But God is going to restore all things. There's never going to be another weed that's annoying in your garden. There's never going to be a broken relationship in any family relationship you're in. Your kids are never going to talk back. You are never going to look at your wife with anything other than sweetness and gentleness. That day is coming. That's shalom. How's it going to happen? God's going to do it. But through the Jewish people. Here's where he starts off this crazy idea to fix this world that is so busted up. It's in Genesis 3.15. This is called the Proto-Evangelion. If you like to take notes, it just means first gospel. First time the gospel, the good news of what God is going to do in this world is sort of whispered into the story. And it says this, this is God talking to both the serpent, the evil one, and Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does that mean? As they're listening to it the first time, they don't really know, but they know God says, I'm going to act. How's he going to act through your offspring, Eve? So something's going to happen through the offspring of Eve where the serpent, the evil one, is hurt. But in the process, so is the offspring of Eve. Sounds like the beginning of the cross story, the good news of the gospel. And then as you start to read more and more in the Old Testament, God just adds color and flesh to this. He starts to flesh out, what is this promise going to look like? Not to the point where people could pinpoint exactly, but they had a better and better idea of what they're waiting for and hoping for in the person that was going to come and restore all things back to Shalom. A good summary verse of like, what are the Jews waiting for in the Old Testament? Like before Christmas was Christmas, what are they like wanting? And Micah, I think, sums it up. Here's what I'd say the Jews are waiting for. God to do something. But how, where, when? But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Right over here. Therefore he shall give them up until the time which she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock, that be Jesus, the Messiah, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What are the Jews waiting for? God to act. How? In a person. In a place. Now Bethlehem gets put on the map. Nobody cares about Bethlehem. And you, Arizona, through carefree Arizona, something great 
is happening. Who cares about carefree? Nobody until a promise is made that happens out of there. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. So why is this genealogy important? That's a long answer to because God made promises to specific people and places. And he is a promise keeper. One author I really love wrote a summary of the Old Testament and a summary of the New Testament. The title of the Old Testament summary is just promise made. The summary of the New Testament is promise kept. That's essentially what we're going to as we read the Bible. God made promises. God kept promises. He made a promise to Eve. Through your offspring, I'm going to fix this place. Like, all right, we know it's going to be a human. It's going to be an offspring of Eve. More specifically, what? Where's, it, where's this person going to come from? And then he speaks to Abraham a few chapters later, Genesis 12. Abraham, through you, through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. Through you, you are going to be blessed to be a blessing. If you look at the stars, you won't even be able to number them. That's the same that your descendants will be one day through you. Something special is going to happen. And then in Matthew, read, and Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father. So the promise begins. And then fast forward down the story. It's not just going to be a Jewish person. It's not just going to be an ethnicity we're waiting for. Now all the table, now all the eyes are looking. All right, it's going to be a Jewish brother that we're looking for. We're waiting for a Jewish Messiah. Okay, beyond that, what else are we waiting for? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to David, you are going to be my king and on your throne will sit my king forever. There will be a king in the line of David that reigns forever. And it's almost like it zeroes it even more. It's not just a Jewish person. It's somebody out of the line of David. And out of the line of David is going to come a king that will sit on the throne forever. And then you read in verse 6, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why is this important? Because God makes promises. And God is showing us that he keeps promises as we go to this genealogy. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing because none of us, most of us probably aren't Jewish by nature, so we don't have natural sort of Jewish thinking ways built into us. But how is this genealogy actually arranged? Because it's kind of helpful to know, like, okay, how did Matthew put this together? So here's the first thing I just want us to know, and this is sort of just to give cred to the Bible, that it is trustworthy and true. Here's the first thing Matthew does not want us to think. He does not want us to think this is an exhaustive list. The Jewish people are not concerned with uh, sort of being the lawyer type with all the fine print, everything covered. They, like I said, they're an oral society. They told stories. So most of what they said and carried on and passed on had to be memorable, had to be sort of acronyms or poetry or songs or, you know, those songs your kids know that just drive you nuts. Why? Because they needed to memorize it. But this is not supposed to be an exhaustive list. I'll just show you where he even leaves some stuff out. Go to verse 8. Again, I'm not going to camp out in all these names. But it says, And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, comma, just so you know, he doesn't put in the next three kings that are in that line. And then after Joram, the father of Uzziah. Why? Because he's not worried about being exhaustive. He's sort of like, this one, this one, this one, that, that'll do. They get the point. We're Jews. We're in this together. They want it to be memorable. Here's the other thing. How is this broken down? Because that tells us something. So you look at verse 2 through verse 6, verse 6 through verse 11, verse 12 through verse 16. It's sort of three different sections. And here's the first section. It's before the kingdom. 
It's from Abraham to David before the Jews had a king and a kingdom. And then we kick off in verse, uh, middle of verse 6, and now David down to the deportation. What's the deportation? It's where the kingdom of the Jews was dismantled and broken up by the Assyrians and the Babylons. Real people, real places, real history. My kids were like always shocked when they come home. They're like, we learned about Bible stuff today. What do you learn about? Assyria and Babylon. Yeah, that really happened. So we got pre-kingdom, the kingdom, and then after the, the Babylonian deportation, all that, verse 12 down to this modern day, to this person who is Christ. This is really happening. These are real people, real time frames. Each of these sections covers about 400, 500 years. But this is really part of the Jewish narrative. And what does Matthew want us to know? How did the Jews tell time? They tell time through kingdoms. Before the kingdom, when the kingdom was great with David, and after the kingdom. It's sort of like people that are super into politics. You know, you got your guy, if you're like an older person, Reagan maybe is your dude. Like, Reagan. Reagan was the pinnacle of America. After that, it's all garbage. The Jews are like, David is the pinnacle. That's when we had it figured out, which is kind of true. That's the season where they had peace, prosperity. David was still killing way too many people, which is part of his issue, and sleeping with people he shouldn't be sleeping with. However... On a grand scale, that was the high life of the kingdoms of God. How else is this arranged? Here's the thing that if you really want to dive in, if you're like people invite friends that are sort of skeptical or just figuring out Christianity, a lot of times there's passages like this that present sort of issues. And I get that. But I just want you to know, here's kind of the, the main issue if I had to summarize the genealogy of Matthew is there seems to be some discrepancies. Specifically, if you fast forward and go to Gospel of Luke, there's another genealogy as well. So Matthew says, Abraham, da 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 Jesus. If you read Luke, he starts with Jesus and works back to Adam. In most of them, you could pair up, okay, that matches, that matches, that matches, that matches, that matches. Oh, discrepancy. That matches, that matches. Like, what's going on there? And here's what most people think. There's a different emphasis on what they want. Matthew wants to show he is in the line of David. This is the son of David. This is the legal, rightful king of Israel. Where Luke, who traces back to Adam, is just trying to sow Jesus' bloodline through Mary. So you're looking at sort of different aspects of this same reality. Just for example, the father of Joseph is somebody different in each of these accounts. It's like, you got two baby daddies? Ah, maybe. <laughs> like Luke says, the father of Joseph is Heli, H-E-L-I. In this section, Matthew says the father is Jacob. Two different names. It's not like, well, Jacob is Heli, and nope, they're different. And how do we make sense of that? Again, one's trying to focus on the legal line. The other one's trying to focus on the bloodline. And there's reality. He could have two fathers, especially in a culture that had inheritance passed on through male bloodlines. It's more than likely Mary or Joseph both had two sort of dad figures, a dad who was like the blood dad and then an uncle or somebody who was the sort of inheritance keeper for that family. And again, you could read all the commentaries in the world and not all of them totally land on the same thing. But that's essentially what I think is happening. It's just emphasizing different things. This Bible is still trustworthy and true. But Matthew is wanting us to see one thing. This is the one we have waited for. This is the one from Abraham. This is the one from David. He 
has arrived. This is the one. So much so that even built into sort of what you can't see in the text, especially for us who are just English readers, English writers, in the Hebrew, there's sort of this secret uh, sauce behind this, this wording and how this is put together that the Jews would be like, oh, I know what he's doing there. Because uh, just go down to verse 17. I want to show you what the Jews would hear as they heard this read. So all the generations... From Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Three sections, 14 generations, three sections. And we could sit here for hours without Google and none of us would ever figure it out. But David in Hebrew is a three-letter word. And in Hebrew, each letter corresponds to a number. It's a way to sort of do code. My kids are doing all this code now. They have this stuff so they can write notes and be mean without other people knowing. This is sort of a code. Hebrew, you have a Hebrew letter, and then with that is a word. And the word David is three letters, and it's the number four, the number six, the number four. Add them all up, 14. Three letters, 14. Matthew is saying, just so you know, so I can be abundantly clear, this is about... David. Not just David, though. The king that was supposed to reign in the line of David. The one we have been waiting for. We are looking at David. I wrote, just to, like, for it to make sense for me, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is in the line of David. But he's going to give us a few little hints and whispers that Jesus is not in line with David. David is here, but he's a far better David. Here's how Tim Keller, a pastor in New York who's since retired, he would always say this about Old Testament characters where they sort of have lots of limitations, but they sort of pointed us towards the Messiah to come. He said, David is the true, Jesus is the true and better David. What's this about? David, 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 David. And Matthew wants us to look at David. But here's what I think Matthew wants us to do. See David and then see the figure behind him that overshadows him in every possible way. Jews, your one has come. The line of David has arrived. Your savior, your king, your Messiah is here, but he's going to be far better. And we can even see his true and betterness as we look at this family tree. So how do we look at this family tree and let it sit with us and bring us any hope, or in the words of Isaiah, any comfort today? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at three characters and just end out our time just saying, how does this comfort us as we look at the family tree? Here's the first thing I want us to know from this family tree. The family tree, Jesus' family tree, is going to include those who have been overlooked. Where do I get that? This family tree is not exclusively Jewish. It involves Ruth, Tamar, Tamar, who's probably a Canaanite, wife of Uriah, Uriah is a Hittite, and you're like, what are these names? I get it. They're not Jewish clans. So in the family tree of Jesus, all the promises come through the Jewish people. You see all these people kind of added to branches that are not Jewish. It's God's way to say the family tree of God will always include all the nations. There will not be one nation overlooked. Not one African nation, not one South American nation, all nations. Revelation says this, all tribes, all tongues, all ethnicities will be included in the supper with the lamb at the end of days. And we see that in this family tree. 
but more than just foreigners, outsiders. It also includes its five women. It includes Tamar, who if you want a horrific story, you could read hers. Her husband dies. If you grew up in a Catholic background and you don't use birth control, the story of how that came to be is the story of Tamar. Then a brother-in-law is told to come and pass on the seed through her, allow her to have an inheritance. And he enjoys the benefits of sex without the reproduction and responsibility tied to that, and God strikes him dead. And she's included in this. Nobody wants that story, and yet God includes that story. Rahab, a prostitute who was used during the time when the Jews were trying to get into the land. Such a good prostitute that foreigners from far away kind of knew exactly where she'd be. Before social media, before anything spread fast, well, I know this one girl. She's included. Ruth, a Moabite, wife of Uriah, and then finally, Mary. Nobody gets overlooked in the kingdom of God. That is different than every household represented here. I overlook my kids all the time. Not on purpose, sometimes on purpose. I overlook my wife, I don't see her. I overlook people here at the church. Why? Because that's how we are. That's human age. We overlook stuff. In a society that was kind of male-driven, they're going to overlook women all the time. And Matthew puts in these women as a way to say, look, nobody gets overlooked in this kingdom. Even so, I want to just highlight a man now that gets overlooked, Uriah. Who is this Uriah character? Verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who is Uriah? If you grew up in church, you've heard the story, but Uriah kind of gets pushed out and it becomes the story of David and Bathsheba, who had a relationships, and Uriah is off to war, faithfully doing what the king asked him to do, and his wife is being taken advantage of back home by the man who sent him off. She gets pregnant. David's like, I got to solve this problem. I'll bring Uriah back. I'll let him have relationships with his wife. That way, this kid will just be considered to be theirs, and I won't have to deal with it again. All right, Uriah, faithful to the end, said, I will not go into my house while my soldiers are still at battle. I am sleeping outside. David's like, what do I do? I know the right thing to do would be repent, but I'm not there yet. Here, he sends a note, says, put Uriah in the front, and Uriah is killed, murdered by the king he sought to serve and protect. And that man gets put into the family tree. Uriah, name, will always be read as we go to Matthew to study the birth of Jesus. That is a beautiful, poetic way for God to say, nobody gets overlooked. David doesn't write the story, I write the story. And Uriah gets written into the family tree. It's God's way to say, no one in my kingdom gets overlooked. I am far better than David. What else do we see as we look at some of these characters? The family of Jesus is always going to heal and restore those who have been hurt, those who have pain, those who have been abused, those who have been assaulted, those who have been taken advantage of. What is the story of the wife of Uriah now? If Uriah is this guy who was overlooked, who was just faithfully doing his job, what's the story of the wife of Uriah? She's taken a bath, and the king, the most powerful man, in that moment, sees her from a distance, go bring that woman to me. I've always been taught that story as a story about, hey, 
don't lust. Don't look at girls that aren't yours and definitely don't sleep with them. But the more I'm reading this and the more I'm honestly reading this story in sort of mixed company, the more uh, ugly this story gets. It's sort of early on in my faith is like, all right, guys have this issue and they need to work on it. Now I read it and it's like, this world is bent against protecting women. Because this woman whose husband is being faithful, she's just minding her business. The most powerful man in her world says, go bring her to me. And he has sex with her. Probably rapes her. Sexually assaults her. And she gets written into the family tree of Jesus. Like as you read statistics on abuse and especially sexual assault, I mean, it's terrible like one out of four to one out of eight. Either way, like way too many people can relate to Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. What comfort do we have as we go to the family tree and say, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah? What comfort is there in the words of Scripture here? Here's the first thing. I love what God calls her through the writer, Matthew. She's the wife of Uriah. Like there's a truth to be told that is not always told in our day and age in our world. But there is a truth that reigns above all truths. It's God's point of view. And God says that is the wife of Uriah. She's not Bathsheba, the one who slept with David. She is the wife of Uriah. And he has the story. He has the final say. And those of you that have been hurt, abused, like all of us in certain ways, but some of you in very personal, real, painful ways, God sees it. And God will have the final say. But more than that, here's what's just crazy about how God's sovereignty works. God does not work around this pain and hurt of her sexual past. It's not like God slides it to the side and says, let's, let's focus on the better details of your life, the less kind of messy stuff. She is written into the family tree specifically through what happened to her with David. As a way to say, God is going to write your story far better than you could ever understand, even when it involves hurt, even when it involves pain, especially when it involves those things. The family tree of God includes those who have been hurt, and God's restoring you and bringing you in. That's beautiful. Now, where else do we get that story of reality for how life is? It is terrible, and terrible things have been done, but something beautiful is happening and will continue to happen because God is writing the story. And then finally, the family of Jesus includes sinners like you and like me. Where do I see that? Well, all these people, anybody, Abraham is a sinner. We could list off a litany of things that all these people did with the exception of probably Uriah. He's the only one who doesn't have any of his junk written into scripture. But more kind of beautifully, I think God through the person Matthew shows us, hey, I'm going to take anyone I want, any sinner of any background and bring him in and do what I want with him or her. Where does Matthew come into the story? I want you to Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 9. Just see where Matthew, the author, enters this story. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. This is the beginning of this relationship with Jesus and now his, the author of his biography. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And, Jesus, and he rose and followed him. 
And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Some of us can relate to Bathsheba's story in this room. A lot of us can, but all of us can relate to this notion that my life, when it's all said and done, does not measure up to my own standard I've set for myself, let alone a holy God that we just sang about. Holy, holy, holy. All of us fall short. And Matthew was faced with that every day of his life because he was this Jewish man living in a Roman world and he was kind of on the fence. He was benefiting by being a Roman citizen, being in this Roman, and he was taking advantage of his Jewish brothers. So he was always seen as the sinner. Why? Because he was. And he was doing things he shouldn't be doing. He was taking advantage of people he shouldn't be taking advantage of. And God, in the person of Jesus, goes to him and says, hey, follow me. Hey, let's go have a meal first. And how close did Jesus let him get? Like, this is how my personality works. I always kind of have people at distance. I got to figure out how much I can trust you. How close does Matthew get to Jesus? Meal? No, Jesus says, and by the way, I want you to write my story. I want you to be one of the four people in all of history that gets to write down my biography, my gospel. Matthew, you up for it? I'm just a sinner. I know. You're exactly the kind I want. I did not come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. The family tree of God is only full of sinners who see themselves as such and by grace get invited in. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word that is clear that you are the son of Abraham, the son of David, but is also poetic and mysterious. That nobody really saw it coming exactly like this. That the Jews had huge hints and huge promises they were banking on. And yet when you finally showed up, you were surprised. You were surprisingly more gracious and beautiful, honest than anyone expected. So God, that's our prayer for this Advent season, that you would surprise us again with your presence, that you would show up once again, that as we look at your birth, we would fall in love with you once again. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.